Welcome to the 22nd edition of the Twin Geek Cast with Calvin and David. We're here to compare notes and pistols with Howard Hawks, Seminole, Red River. Movies and friendship. Those are mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. in the 90s i love going and seeing ken griffey and whatnot did you ever follow mariners in the 90s i you know i remember oh i was a kid in the 90s i was born in the 90s so. <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> um you know but i remember like ken griffey you know that was the name you heard always around the time so i had i had that childlike affection for this you know celebrity that everyone kind of built up around me i remember having like a, a ken griffey baseball card or whatever but i didn't really oh, yeah. collect other baseball cards like other people did and you had the good video games on the uh, SNES and the N64. You're doing that thing again. Like, it's the, the IMDb thing. You, just, you pronounce the entirety of the acronym. SNES? It's, yes. I've That's always, how you say it. No, I've always heard SNES. That's always how I've heard it. No, SNES, NES. Im, IMDb. NES and SNES and IMDb. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> I mean, that's just how they how they sound. Look up a pronunciation anywhere. It's in the dictionary. I mean, are those words in the dictionary? Are those acronyms in the dictionary? I don't think they are. Yeah, with pronunciation, they say SNES. SNES the, like the, the Super Nintendo Entertainment System is in the dictionary? I need well, a source like NES, on this. Like the, like the Smash Bros. character named after the Earthbrown guy. You, you know, know what? They call him NES because that's the way you pronunciate the, the system. Is that why? I didn't ever actually think about that, if Ness is named after the the console. Yes. Huh. <laughs> I think Today so. I learned. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And why he, is, uh, why he, they... uh, he also has a baseball bat, which he uh, does. really he does. brings things around. <laughs> That's what we intended. Right. <laughs> What's your favorite baseball movie? Go. Uh, League of Their Own, I think. That's the first one that comes to my mind. I really love Moneyball. Mm-hmm. That's another uh, good one. Did, I think Sorkin did the script for that one, didn't he? I think so, and it was going to be, um, what's his name doing it? Uh, I don't know who what's his guy is. He needs to be more descriptive. <laughs> Bennett Miller, he's done really great stuff because he did, like, Capote and then Foxcatcher recently. Right, yeah. He, I love Capote. Yeah, Capote's really good. Foxcatcher was, I think, good. It had lots of good performances, at least. Uh, Foxcatcher is a great wrestling film. Uh, a lot of good wrestling films out there. I feel like we could use another baseball film. Like, I feel like since Trouble with the Curve, nobody's even approached it. Did you like Trouble with the Curve? I know you're, you're yeah. a huge Eastwood fan, but I, I didn't hear yeah. much. But, yeah. It's fine. Um, Soderbergh was the guy I was thinking of. He was good oh. at Moneyball originally. That and makes he put sense. Out a, he put out the basketball movie uh, this year that's kind of related to Moneyball. High, high Flying Bird, I think it was yeah. called. Yeah, that one's pretty good. Uh, one of the better movies this year so far. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, movies this year, do we want to look at what's going on in the box office? Uh, no, but I think we're obligated by contract. Yeah. There's actually some interesting new ones here. Interesting, not necessarily good, but we're <laughs> <And> talking about. <laughs> this week's box office brought to you by Disney, as always. Mm-hmm. I think this first one, though, you're, you're going to have some interesting things to say you're very conflicted at number 10 we have uh the beach bum <coughs> um is, is that your official stance on the film i hated spring breakers i thought it was soulless and lifeless i think i gave it a five out of ten just because i didn't want it to win 
I like I like your review of it on Letterboxd. It says <laughs> it, yeah, it says something along those lines. Like you know, if I hate it, then it's like the movie wins. <laughs> <laughs> and that's genuinely how I feel. I feel like it's some hipster shit. Where if I really like the film or I really hate the film, it thinks it won over me or something. Like a oh man, there's this uncool adult that really doesn't like uh, this cool kids film about spring break and decadence course mm-hmm. visually it looks very similar to kind of what's going on in spring breakers here it looks like yeah you got kind of a similar vibe it seems you got matthew mcconaughey as a stoner right <laughs> which is just him playing himself right yeah uh, i think uh, i think what i see about it is that harmony corinne just wants to get the actors and kind of sit with them let them develop how they would like into a spring break setting just like the last one um, I thought that movie's like bottom of the barrel, not very interesting. Alien's an interesting character, I suppose, but uh, I guess this one doesn't have any of the consequences, so it doesn't really go anywhere with the the last one's material. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, you know, it seems like he's making a series of kind of divisive films. The ratings on them all seem to be very in in the middle. Like either you really into this or you you fucking despise it. <laughs> I like the um, letterbox summary of Beach Bum. You got to go low to get high. <laughs> Well, it's a pretty apt description of how people are taking the film. I think McConaughey is funny because he plays into, like, self-parody of himself a lot. Like, a, a, what what other career path is like this where you're playing, like, Russ from True Detective and then um, this guy from Serenity right into Moondog of Harmony Corinne. There's no mm-hmm. other career that has that kind of outline where uh, he's just doing what he wants. I think it's interesting. He's basically still kind of defined by his dazed and confused role. Yeah. And this seems to go that route. Well, or you think you're going to eventually see it? I know you've been talking about, like, potentially just because you feel kind of obligated. I feel like it's kind of a joke to me, and it's going to slip out of the box office. It probably already is by the time of this recording. So. Yeah, ten, Ten's not a great debut. I don't know how many theaters it came in, though. Yeah, it's about I mean, a thousand, it looks like. thousand one hundred-ish, and it only made less than two million dollars. So, yeah, you know, that's yeah. not even paying McConaughey's way. And Tyler Perry... Uh, Tyler Perry's M- Medea's uh, Family Funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that kind of the title? <laughs> that's, that's what it says. Tyler Perry's A Medea Family Funeral. The sequel to Tyler Perry's I Could Do All Bad By Myself. Tyler Perry's Medea's Neighbors From Hell, the play. Tyler Perry's Mad Diary of a Black Woman, the play. Uh, Ty- Tyler Perry's Medea Gets a Job, the play. And so many other films. Keep going. I'll, I'll listen. I'll, I'll <laughs> have you list them all off. <laughs> Those are off the top of your head. No, just some that I saw. I, like, I just took note of it. I just hope it leaves by next week. I'm done. Yeah, I, I'm i done talking about it. I feel like I've had... Uh, I feel like that was a mouthful just going through a handful of them, and I don't want to... Uh, why are they all based on plays? What's this about? Are they? I don't know. Did he write the plays first? I don't know. Let's stop talking about it. Well, what about this next one? Do we have anything to say about this? I guess we should try <laughs> figuring out what this film is. Number eight, uh, Hotel Mumbai. A uh, terror film about... Uh, what would you call it, going into India, it's based on true events, it looks super depressing, um, I know it has uh, Army Hammer in it. Mm-hmm. And Dev Patel. Yeah, and Dev Patel, those are all the things I know about the film. I uh, watched the trailer, I don't feel sold on it. It doesn't look like it's terribly interesting, neither of the leads are really interesting to me either. I you don't know, like Army Hammer. <laughs> Army Hammer was fun in Sorry to Bother You, because he just basically gotta go all ham in the movie yeah, all hammer oh, all hammer. did you not like him in call me by your name 
I, I thought he was fantastic in just that movie, and I usually don't like him in anything. I didn't care for him in The Man from Uncle, or uh, thought he was fine in Social Network. That's about it. Oh, I forgot. He stars in The Lone Ranger. That's weird. Garbage. <laughs> I think that's proof enough. He he's not much of an actor, but he has a he has a haircut that people want. So. Yeah, I, I gotta say. It's a nice haircut. It's it's close to a Graham haircut, but... Uh... <laughs> we, we had a nice discussion with <laughs> Graham and everyone on the team today about... Or yesterday about haircuts. Two of our authors came out looking exactly like clones. So when we say twin geeks, it's literal. Yes, very literal. I mean, doesn't do a lot for our diversity ratings, but uh, I, think it, I think it's a good look that we're all matching. We, we, we picked the name first, so we kind of had to fall into suit with that. Right. I mean, we, we picked the name first and then our genetic second. So. Yeah, so we should have gone with the diverse geeks, and that might have helped us a bit more. I know. Well, there's always time to adjust. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about Hotel Mumbai, right? This is, <laughs> this is what happens when we, we aren't terribly interested in whatever new film has been churned out. Yeah, I think our, our haircut story might be more interesting than this. I, 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 I don't know. It looks like one of those films like Argo that doesn't have like an interesting plot. Oh, you're right. It, it definitely feels uh, like looking at it. It feels like kind of one of those Middle East, um, you know, political uh, dramas, thrillers, kind of like Argo was. Yeah, I, I feel like I feel like Argo allowed some things to get made that probably you know are pretty middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I I think it might stick around for like another week or so. So we'll probably have more to talk about it then. Yeah, maybe oh. I'll see it. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, what is sticking around is going to be the next one here. How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Which has had pretty minimal drop-offs week to week. I'm pretty impressed with how it's holding, but also there's not a lot else for kids to see right now. Yeah, as we'll see, uh, there's there's some entry. Uh, there's at least one entry coming up here, which I'm shocked with oh. me to this high. But I did, a, I did re-watch uh, How to Train Your Dragon with Ezra this week, though, oh, and she oh. loved it. Yeah, she did the first one? Uh, no, we watched this uh, latest one, and she oh, this list? really enjoyed it. How did you enjoy it this next time? You, you've called it before a, a kind of background film or whatever. <laughs> I feel like it's still a screensaver movie for like parents go. that are busy doing chores, but uh, then you look up every so often, and you're like, yeah, that's that's really nice. Oh, yeah, those visuals are really pretty. <laughs> Good job. And I still, I still love the bit with Toothless and the female dragon where they're like soaring through the northern lights, and it feels like a scandinavian folktale where uh it looks like something you'd read in a picture book it's really gorgeous mm-hmm. well hopefully dreamworks finds another franchise they can put as much heart into yeah, shrek <laughs> seriously like what was the last um i don't know like like franchise they really seem to care about yeah shrek then this one and uh did they ever have another one they had lots of different things i guess going on i don't know about like different series like this is one of the only big franchises they kind of made everything else just kind of didn't work like they had like the <laughs> the monsters versus aliens and nobody liked that they, no, had, they were terrible they had megamind and that didn't uh, uh you, spawn you any franchise the, hmm. my daughter really likes the trolls movies those are kind of fun they're I'm cute so, i'm so sorry for you that you have to sit through that oh they're fun they have, they have they? good music remade into yeah yeah they look they look more on the level of Smurfs movies from the advertisements. Um, yeah, they're a little bit better than the Smurfs. I think they have a little bit more heart in them. That's good. Cause they get there's... a lot of they get a lot of good uh, voice talent to do those. Well, I think well, you'd be surprised. Voice talent doesn't equate good movie 
as, as the gnome movies have shown us as well. <laughs> They're a lot better than the gnome movies. Uh, other than that, uh, they have Kung Fu Panda. That was kind of a oh, thing. Oh, you're right. That was that I've actually heard is a great series from them, kind of rivaling this. Like, they actually do good with that. Then there's uh, Captain Underpants, which I, I want to get Ezra into, but I don't really know what it is yet. I remember reading Captain Underpants growing up. You did? Yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm in a weird generation where I only had like Harry Potter and there weren't any other big kids books and like I miss like the YA boom, right? Like mm-hmm. I miss the after effect of Harry Potter and I only got the part that started it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I remember definitely growing up there were a lot of those kind of uh, kid different books or whatever. I remember reading a lot of uh, Magic Treehouse growing up. That was a big one when I was in elementary school. Um, there's, um, you know, kind of around the same YA boom. People were really into stuff like uh, Aragon. I remember that a lot. The series of unfortunate events, you know, they just recently had the Netflix TV series of it. That was one I grew up reading. I mostly grew up reading, like, Kafka and Dostoevsky and oh, well, Hemingway. Ex- excuse me, reading such pretentious literature in the third grade, I see. I was reading romantic poets. Well, all right then. I guess if that's all we have to say on that. Well, more animated stuff, it looks like. Number here, six, Wonder Park, which we've talked about a little uh, bit. <laughs> The, the girl's mom dies in the first, like, ten minutes. Really depressing film. Um, I don't think there's a lot to really dig into. She creates a, a kind of trauma diversion in her head to keep her away from the trauma of her mom dying. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as we've seen, based on kind of visuals and the little bit, I believe, you, you saw of it, it just seems yeah. very generic and uninspired, and I don't know why you'd go see this over something else. Like, I mean, you got How to Train Your Dragon in here still. I think there's, like, a certain appeal to kids with, like, the theme park setting. and But I don't feel like it has any joy in that. So. Just let them play Roller Coaster Tycoon instead. Exactly. That'll really, you know, tap into their creativity way more than whatever this generic crap is. Yeah, it's not great. And it doesn't have a director, which still confuses me. Yeah, like with child porn or pedophilia issues or something like that uh, definitely God. sending the wrong message there I, I i mean i can't even believe you get to release having that kind of story tied to your movie so i also can't believe it's doing this well like did they did they market it mm-hmm. well I, I think just in general studios can't really afford to not distribute films you know yeah I, we, we kind of had a similar probably not as uh controversial issue or i mean not as a tied, you know, big way issue with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody with Brian Singer there. I did see not not too long ago. I mean, you could kind of have a little bit of erasure around like what the director did uh, if you just dropped them from the project, right? Yeah, that seems to be what they're trying to do since that was done in 2018, the very beginning of 2018. The movie well, there's came. probably there's probably like a theory behind it. Like an animation team is a little bit different than a director because you have like you know, hundreds of people leading storyboards, potentially. Uh, I, I think either way, it just doesn't seem like it produced a good result to begin with. Like, it probably wasn't the lack of director's fault. It just seemed doomed to fail from the get-go. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there was ever a worthwhile hook. I mean, it's as ge- generic as the name sounds. It's funny because uh, Wonder Park and Action Point sound exactly the same. They're both terrible movies about theme parks. It'll still probably stick around. We got a little bit more. We'll probably talk about it this week. I don't know. I'm getting bored of talking about this one. How about you? It could probably fuck off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, uh, number five here. We have uh, Five Feet Apart. That's our latest cool cancer teen movie, right? Yeah, and uh, there aren't many movies out there about CF, so it's it's interesting when you get a little bit of representation on screen by notable actors. Mm-hmm. Well, how notable? I mean, one of them is the Sprouse twins, right? <laughs> one of them. Um, and the other one's Haley Lude Richardson. I'm just here to support the girl. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I I'm just here to give her money. So it has such a sappy, um, 
hackneyed ending that feels like it's ripped from like a romance novel and uh well it's essentially it's essentially one of those another t you know why kind of uh teen things going on here so of course it's going to be snappy it doesn't surprise me yeah the whole point is like they can't get more than six feet uh apart or they're going to make each other sick right like a for people dealing with cf they have you know they could carry around a lot of things that potentially they don't want to spread to the others in the hospital so they uh they have to break the rules because uh Cole Sprouse is a, a rebellious shithead, and he really wants to make it five feet apart. So that's why the title's cute. Do, do they ever get? Do they ever get closer than five feet? Do they? Do they mac or anything? Yes. Ah, so I mean, it's a little misleading a title. Then why not zero feet apart? <laughs> One feet. What does no the feet, feet matter if, if it's not a strict rule? I mean, I guess that's what it, that that kind of creates like a sense of tension just in the idea right like that's why i went inside i thought that oh that's a romantic comedy with an idea of uh, people that can't come close to each other well that's kind of nice it is until they break that rule that they set up it's no longer interesting then <laughs> uh, yeah i mean then you you get into uh, i don't want to get into it exactly there's a pretty stereotypical gay guy that uh, also kind of sides in the room with them and um they all seem to break a lot of rules and you have to kind of break some uh, suspension of belief to even buy into it do we really need a stereotypical caricature gay character when it's 2019 we really should be past that now but they have cf so they're different <laughs> okay but yeah i i can't think of a single other movie about cystic fibrosis especially so uh we're getting specialty movies about whatever uh, kids may be dealing with if it's important to them, I think that's fantastic, but not for me. Yeah, well, it's not the worst thing in here, for sure. That's for our next no. slot here. I don't know how I got up this high, and I'm very ashamed, very mad at America for letting this happen. Uh, what is it? Number four, we have Christian propaganda unplanned. Uh, so, is that the. That's a Planned Parenthood movie. It should be fantastic. No. Keep kids from, um, you know the risky HIV out there, give them some information about, okay, you know, you don't have to have this baby if it if it's not going to live well, you know. It's your choice, right? Ah, oh, how, how naive there, Calvin, you see. You didn't see that this film is from Pure Flix, who is all about what? telling you how bad it is to have sex and how abortions are evil and sins against God and all that crap. Are you telling me that it's an anti-Planned Parenthood movie? <laughs> yes, very much so. I, the the whole poster has like a, a just a teardrop. What she ch saw changed everything. I, I don't know what she saw. Uh, well, here here's what the description on DB says. It says Abby Johnson is one of the youngest Planned Parenthood directors in the U.S. After she is asked to assist in an abortion at 13 weeks gestation, she instead resigns, becoming a pro-life activist. That that's oh. just straight up propaganda. I I mean they're picking like what one story at the bottom of the barrel out of millions of positive stories that so they could like lean into their uh, partisan idea of what this uh, needs to be about. I don't even think it's based on a true story. How often does the oh. the thirteen weeks thing actually happen? There's so much of that straw man arguing thrown around. I see about you know oh you know they let it happen you know eight months in eight months terminate pregnancy and that's not even something that happens. And unfortunately, the way that these things go is they get a little bit of outrage and then certain parts of Twitter or certain parts of the political spectrum will latch onto them. So uh, the more we talk against it, the more yeah. it succeeds. Generally, these films from like Pure Flix are either completely ignored by the most part on online or just used to kind of make fun of. 
which is always are they like the gods not dead people yes it's the same exact people who make those movies oh okay so it's all it's all coming from that (laughs) but okay well the disappointing thing is that there's obviously a very large audience who is going out to see this film you know it made number four at the box office granted it's only about six million dollars here which isn't that much for a debut and Dear God, I hope it's not in the box office next week, but... Um, but, I mean, what could its budget be, right? Like, one million? Yeah, I mean, it's probably fine, but I, I don't think anyone should get to see it. Is it? I'm actually kind of curious to check the budget. Budget's actually six million, so... so okay, so it made its budget back in a day. That's great. <laughs> nah, that, not so great, but... <laughs> um, I, I don't... It's one of those where I can't think of... Usually I say I want people to go and enjoy every movie, right? Like... I want everyone to have an outcome for a film. But I don't want you guys to go fucking see this. Yeah. I don't want anyone to enjoy this or have fun with it. I don't want any positive out- outcomes. Well, it's not meant to be a positive experience. It's supposed to, to kind of indoctrinate you further into this idea that this whole process is an evil and awful thing and it shouldn't be allowed at all. Like, it's not even... The whole idea is that there's there's not going to be any angle on it that's going to be that... You know, abortion is okay in any sense, even if you... You know, not the 13-week one, you know... I don't know. How's it doing critically? It can't be awful. Can't be Ab- absolutely well. dreadful. Look, I've got the, the the Metacritic average here is an eleven out of a hundred is the average <laughs> scoring for it. The AV oh Club God. gave it a zero, just full I, up zero. I really feel like Beach Bum didn't do very well now. <laughs> yeah, right. When this outperformed Fuck. it, they might need to look at what happened with Beach Bum because of this being higher that that's just a statement about the box office well, i think it's a statement about america and you know what a large portion of the country is willing to kind of you know suck on unfortunately we can't just play in this so it's like box office results of the pacific northwest which would be a, are, you know the right uh, not the right leaning movies Ca- so. calvin are you saying that our box offices are unplanned um, <laughs> I'm just saying we might want to abort this section. Yep, I agree. <laughs> All right, number three, moving on here. Uh, propaganda in a different way, I guess, but better propaganda <laughs> is Captain Marvel. <laughs> uh, so Avengers tickets went on sale this morning. Right, and uh, you have to wait like 20 minutes in line to try and get it like it's the Rolling Stones coming to town. <laughs> Right, people are on the resale market, going on like a you know like StubHub, like okay, I get a forty dollars uh, Avengers ticket, scalping scratching Avengers like tickets. they need some coke. What's that? <laughs> scalping Avengers tickets. Right. Can't wait to see people at the theater, I've... you know, just just trying to sell front row seats. Get your Avengers tickets. I mean, you wouldn't want front row, but no, but I mean, people are going to do that. They're going to go for anything they could get at this point. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested. I want to bo- I want to see booths set up inside the theaters now with you know Avengers swag that they sell T-shirts for fifty bucks a pop. People act like it's always going to be like a horrible thing, and I'm like, no, they're just going to add like twenty more screens. Don't worry about this. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be a ton, and I mean, I'm not even concerned about seeing it opening day at this point. I think. Oh, I'm avoiding the theater for at least four or five days afterward. That's my usual plan, unless I have to review something. Right, but luckily we have someone else covering this tyler's been so gracious to cover this thank god i mean i hope i'm really looking forward to his coverage I but just, uh, i just don't want to be doing it i don't even know if i would necessarily want to go see it in the theater i probably will just just kind of keep yeah. in time i think but a three hour avengers movie oh that's that's way too much for me i mean we were watching red river this morning and it was pushing it but uh uh 
the thing is about Captain Marvel is that um, I think it's pretty middle of the road for Marvel. I think it's more on the Doctor Strange end mm-hmm. than the Avengers end that people seem to go for. Right, and she's supposed to be leading the, the new kind of way forward here. That's a little concerning. The interesting thing about setting it in the 90s, right, is that it makes her like the first Avenger based on the chronology of those uh, films. Well, what did I, doesn't Captain America still? Because he's in the 40s? I just think that uh, the way that it goes, she ends up sort of founding the Avengers ideal by herself. Like, Captain America, of course, exists in the 40s, but uh, the team doesn't really get together in any significant way till later. Mm-hmm. So having her a part of it later kind of implies that her and Samuel Jackson and her cat are the first Avengers. That makes sense. The cat's an Avenger, too. <laughs> it's It's got to be. The cat is a scene stealer. It has alien abilities that are worth going to the theater for. So. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we'll see more of the cat in Endgame. Maybe he'll get a... I just want a solo movie for the cat. That sounds good. Funded Marvel. Yeah. Alright. Um, I don't I don't know. Uh, has Captain Marvel done as well as you thought it would? I mean, it. it's one of the highest grossing films of all time now. <laughs> I know. I mean, like, critically, do you feel like it's kind of... It did exactly as I was kind of expecting, and so a lot of the okay. uproar about it concerning, you know who's supposed to review it and whatnot seems very uh, manufactured. Felt a lot of, like, astroturfing kind of in the end, even if I do think Brie Larson genuinely cares about this issue. It just seemed like a lot Um, of drama for what was exactly what we were expecting. I felt like that was the only word of mouth I really heard uh, around, like, our group uh, leading up to the film, is that it wasn't about the film, it was about uh, how critics would perceive it and where they're coming from. Yeah. I think that's because there's just not very much to the film. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, moving on here. We have uh, Us, number two here still, which we did a podcast about um, last week. Jordan Peele's follow-up to The Get Out, and we have a uh, podcast on both back-to-back the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we also have our review up, obviously, that uh, Graham wrote for us, um, which is also very good insight into it. You're still kind of faltering on it, right? Like, you're, you're, you don't believe it's uh, as good as Get Out? No, not at all, and I see a lot of opinions um, both ways because, you know, a lot of people seem to like it a lot, you know, uh, and a lot of people also don't like it as much as Get Out or don't like either or whatever. It's very divisive, and I think that's uh, an interesting, good thing. Uh, you know, I'll say this, even though I was not entirely with the film, you know, I was, I was pretty disappointed by the end of it. I liked uh, that it's creating a lot of conversation. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. That's interesting um, to me. I... I think that's where I got out of it as a conversation piece. There's been a lot that I've been thinking about. I read articles about it every day, which I don't often do after seeing a film. So, uh, there's a part of it that's really stuck with me, uh, especially the way that it ended. It really resonated with me a different way than I think it did you. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think so. You are the most positive person I've personally interacted with on the film so far. Everyone else has been kind of in the same range, maybe a little bit more positive than I was on it. But I do think that made for some very interesting discourse. I really enjoyed our, our last week's conversation because it was so argumentative. I feel like it's a, a film that people will still like pull out. They'll they'll look back at like two thousand nineteen and say, Here's this weird thing that came out in the beginning of the year when there weren't any good movies. Yeah. There really weren't any. I mean yeah. <laughs> granted I didn't go out and see very many, you know, so far. This is the second film I saw this year, but it was better than Glass, at least. Glass was a a different kind of disappointment. <laughs> I mean, I go down, like, the list for, like, my year, and then I think about it, and the way that my year went, if I didn't go to festivals, I wouldn't have a whole lot of great stuff to provide, right? And it's already April. We're yeah. the fourth month. 
we're almost halfway through, and I I have like uh, three movies that I'm kind of sure about could make like a top ten. Mm-hmm. You think this this next movie on our list would make your top ten? Number one for the box office here. Uh, top ten what? Like the a year. Top ten Disney recreations. <laughs> top ten Disney shills. Top ten Disney movies about uh, mega corporations ruining small businesses. They're getting a lot of those, aren't they? Or that kind of <laughs> yeah. general message. Um, so what do we have? Dumbo. Dumbo's here. Uh, Dumbo? Uh, uh, do you have any personal connection with the old Dumbo? A little, I guess. I remember it briefly in kind of uh, childhood memories. I think I remember stuff like Pinocchio and Seven, uh, Snow White a bit more, yeah. you know, than I do something like uh, Dumbo. Well, but I remember... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, D- Dumbo has... A couple of really great animated sequences. If the story is not very good on it, it looks really nice in a traumatizing kind of way. Uh, Dumbo came out early '40s, I think, after Fantasia. Like, kinda... Yeah, I think like 1940 or 41, maybe. Yeah, 1941, after Fantasia kind of failed at the box office, uh, Disney put Did... all their big budget into this film that didn't produce anything. Then they gave. I'm a shocked tiny... to hear that Fantasia failed. Right, it initially failed. Um, and so they put all their uh, small amount of money into this little film about an elephant that doesn't have a lot going on, and that ended up being a huge box office success for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where the lineage of Dumbo comes from. It kind of saved the company at a time where they were, um, you know, kind of struggling to get things made. Like it's funny when you go back and watch it; you still get like the RKO intro and everything. That's a little bit nostalgic. Was it RKO? That's crazy yeah. to me. I didn't even remember that. Yeah, RKO and the original Dumbo. And this one's interesting because it's so anti-corporation. It it really kind of... I mean, that's kind of all of Burton's perspective, right? Like, he was a kid that was picked on, and, you know, he's kind of lashing out against the establishment. I I gotta ask, are there any racist crow equivalents? I don't think there are. None that I really saw. I feel like it's pretty clean that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, that's definitely something that wouldn't usually fly. I remember liking the crows as a kid, but yeah, what did I know? I was a kid. I feel like Dumbo didn't have a lot of songs relative to other Disney films. Sort of. It was like an hour long. I know it was also sixty-three-ish minutes, and this is about double its length. Why would you need to make a two-hour Dumbo movie? <laughs> that's what they did, though. They took like a they made it live action, which for one, your main character can never be live action because he's an elephant, and there are too many rights problems with shooting elephants. So uh, you can't even use a main character. It's just I mean, people d- talking to like a fake CG component. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd want to use a real elephant anyway. No. Elephants suck. Pictures. I just went to a zoo this weekend and <laughs> Elephant was just showing us our, our, his ass the whole weekend. And Ezra was trying to make elephant noises at him going, Aah! and the elephant wouldn't even <laughs> fucking turn around. They were pretty lazy. They don't like to do much. I mean, I had elephant elephant full of my whole weekend and i went to the zoo expecting great things and it wouldn't even turn around for us like elephants are the laziest creatures which which elephant was better the the cgi fake elephant or the real lazy elephant Uh, the cg elephant because it did a lot for me because it it flies and shit and so what you're saying is that zoos need flying elephants to bring in the crowds and it carries eva green around which is kind of fun to watch I mean, she's always been like an alluring screen presence, and uh, she's she's really interesting in the film. But that's mm-hmm. about it. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's too much to say about this. It'll stick around for a while, so let's save any more uh, further thoughts and elephant opinions for next week. But what's your favorite elephant film? I don't know. 
I don't, I don't have... What, what is an elephant film? <laughs> have I seen many elephant films? Uh, uh, you know I, what? I, I, th- I think I got an answer for now. I remember way back, it was like the second film me and you watched together, of White Hunter Blackheart was really good. That does a great ending with the elephants, too. I'm calling it an elephant film. That's the closest thing we're going to get right now, so... Yeah. Um, but uh, this one, not very good or interesting. Uh, probably don't go see it. I don't know why you would. Mm-hmm. I guess if you want to support Tim Burton's failing career. I mean, I, I don't think it's doing very well, despite being first in the box office. Yep, 45. I don't know how much was its budget. 130-ish, I think. Let's see, let's see. 170. Okay. Yeah. So, way below the budget, not doing great. Um, Disney should probably stop, but uh, I think they, they already know that, because they moved like uh, two of their live-action films onto the Disney Plus. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, which ones they move over to Disney Plus? Do you know? Oh, I think it was like Fox and the Hound and something else that's pretty minor. Um, Why are they doing Fox and the Hound? What? Disney live action movies? Disney Plus? I'll have to cut a lot of this. Yeah. They have We're, Lilo and Stitch. They're um, doing a live action Lilo and Stitch? Little Mermaid. Lady and the Tramp was the one I was thinking of. That I mean, that one I see again. It's not going to be much CGI. But whatever. I see. I see a listing here that they're doing James and the Giant Peach, which I think is the best idea of all of them. Well, it, I guess it could, but I mean, I hope they keep the stop motion. Maybe I mean that's kind of the whole charm of the film. Yeah, I think you got to keep the uh, segments that are partially in CG because there's a lot of stuff that you know. A lot of these films obviously can't become CG. I mean, they mm-hmm. have to be. Lion, like Lion King, King is going to be all CG. Obvious. <laughs> Then we have Maleficent 2, and Jungle Book 2, and Peter Pan, we, Pinocchio. We said, we said at the beginning here that this is going to be, you know, the box office is brought to you by Disney. We weren't kidding. <laughs> and after buying Fox, they own about 50% of the box office projected, so that's what we're going to be talking about this year. Yep. In the meantime, though, I think we can stop talking about the box office for today and move on to something a little more less cynical. Let's give him a hand over here. Sure. It's a good-looking gun you were about to use back there. Can I see it? Maybe you'd like to see mine. Nice. Awful nice. You know, there are only two things more beautiful than a good gun. A Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere. You ever had a good Swiss watch? Go ahead, try it. That's very good. Uh, hey, that's good too. Come on, keep it going. You're as good as they say you are. So, yep, yeah, we watched uh, Red River this week, John Wayne classic, uh, fantastic western, but this is uh, surprising that this is your first time with it, right, Calvin? surprising because there aren't a lot left that are like that but uh yeah i feel like it's one i should have visited before and i'm really glad to have done it today yeah i know that definitely this is more of my territory because i'm more of a kind of john wayne classic you know ford western guy and you're more of a leone eastwood spaghetti western kind of guy which is a nice balance i think between us but yeah i think that i think that allows us to have a good perspective when we start looking at westerns because i'm more into like the art western you're like into the classical um Epic very, very kind of American style western. I've got a very strong affection for that for sure. And, and this I one, generally, 
I generally think that like a foreigner uh, take is a lot more interesting, but then there's something about an American Western that really gets under the skin of what the, uh, you know, all of, I mean, there are always like social, socio-political uh, tales about the American spirit and uh, what, where people are at at any time. Yeah, I definitely think that's, that's kind of the, the big great thing about Westerns that often go uh, overlooked or underappreciated is that they they kind of always contain the American ideology in some sense because essentially the, the Western frontier is this, this kind of battleground of um, American um, ideology where it all kind of plays out at the height of things. Like, you know, the, the frontier was this this plane of lawlessness and that's where the, the best of American ideals were able to come forth and conquer. That's what, you know, when America kind of needed its uh, its oath the most. Yeah, and they they are the most emblematic of any kind of Americana that you could get. They're the most pure American films. Even the ones from the outside uh, show us a clear image of who we are. They're all reflections of us. I think it's it's definitely the most celebrated um, thing America has brought to film culture. You know, it's the most influential and definitely the most purely American thing. Everything else has influence from elsewhere, but we really crafted the Western. From, yeah. from from the beginnings, I mean, Westerns are as old as the craft of filmmaking, you know, like the, the very first, some of the first films were Westerns. Yeah, they are the American invention for film and storytelling in general. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because uh, you can trace it all the way back to, you know, Western pulp novels, which is kind of where a lot of this comes from. And specifically, Red River as well was based on, um, what's it, um... A story the from the Saturday Evening, Evening Post. Post originally, yep, by Borden Chase called uh guns across the uh, the chisholm trail which i then you know was kind of made to a book called blazing guns across the chisholm trail okay. so the only thing i knew about that coming in is that it's like the uh mutiny on bounty right like yep. it's it's a remake of that historical event in the it's, west it's basically a very very similar kind of story is that and i remember i think even hawks uh, How director howard hawks called it that's a western mutiny on the bounty where essentially there's a huge event the whole idea is that you know john wayne's uh, thomas dunson you know is a big cattle baron and he's driving this massive herd of cattle all the way from texas a thousand miles all the way up to missouri and along the way you know they go through so many you know he, he becomes a tyrannical kind of leader and so eventually he gets kind of overthrown and swears vengeance and you know mm-hmm. so that's when the party sl- splits off with montgomery clifton it's a really great kind of a, you know, moral battle between them because they they spend a lot of time beforehand building up that relationship between Wayne and Clift that that you feel that, uh, you know, deep connection between them. So that betrayal is very uh, kind of tragic and, you know, <clears throat> unfortunate. And it is uh, largely about the drive. I mean, uh, more so than a lot of Westerns, I feel like it has a lot of movement and it's able to pace itself based on these events, whether they're, you know, uh, stampedes or uh, settlements. Um, it has a good um, balance of what it wants to bring at any time and where the movement is. It's unbelievable that uh, it would have been Hawks' uh, first Western. Yeah, it was, which is incredible considering that it's a humongous, gigantic in its scope. The, the amount of uh, <laughs> moving the cows there, we, we talked about kind of a little briefly watching the film together, but th- this is not, you, you would not make this same movie this way today. They had no. about two to three hundred cattle actually available yeah but they filmed it in such a way to make it look like thousands 
it's an you were talking ocean about cattle. the 360 shot which is interesting yeah there's a really great shot so right uh that's such a great moment as well right where they're about to start the the drive for the first time this is very quiet lead up to it and you come and you see and they're the camera pans around the whole 360 degrees around, you know, from like Dunson's perspective. He's watching over his whole herd, you know, seeing in the middle of the, the morning there. And it's done in like three different shots because it was done on a rotating mechanical camera. And the cuts are hidden by the posts of the, you know, the fencing around the area. So, and what they would do is they would take the herd of cattle and they'd move it around to each side of the post, so then they just stitch the three shots together, so it looks like one complete take, and you can't even see it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I was looking for it, because you said right before, here's where the three cuts are, and I could barely tell. Like, I could piece them together in my head, but uh, uh, it's still smooth, and it does create... It's it's impressive in 2019 to be impressed with the spectacle of uh, 1948. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And again, you mentioned the stampede sequence, which is terrifying and magnificent. It's hard filmed. to film. Yeah, especially because there's all sorts of angles. There's like low angles shooting up at the cows or kind of hooves run over and whatnot. You know, they got lots of uh, wide angles, close-ups, you know. And I think the, the integration of various kind of uh, projection shots in there are more, more natural moments in the film where they've got them kind of running up against them. It's a very well-filmed sequence, very well-paced out as well. It's, it's chaos with, you know, intent. Hmm. There's a lot of intent behind it, and there is a driving force behind everything. Um, I was very surprised by how uh, modern it would feel uh, most of the time. There are a few slips, especially around women, and um, there's a little bit of homophobia in the way the gays are shot. But uh, Well, I mean, it, I guess that's a good point to bring up, is that I don't know if I would say uh, you know anyone is particularly uh, specifically gay in the film, but there is some, some subtext in here. We're coming back around again. We like to talk about uh, homosexual themes in westerns, like we do with Shane, and there is a bit of that here with um, uh, Red River as well, especially in the kind of relationship between Montgomery Cliff's Matt and uh, the Cherry Valance character. That like introductory scene between them, where they're literally comparing pistols. He literally says, "Show me yours, I'll show you mine." Yes, and something like that. He's like, you know, I really like that, you know, pistol of yours or whatever. <laughs> and he's like, they're really good. They're like, they're really admirers of it. It's a very homoerotic sequence. I mean, kind of the, it's, I mean, it's basically, it's more homoerotic than Brokeback Mountain. Almost. <laughs> I mean, I mean it they'd have to have their pants down to make it any more. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't. Sexual. It doesn't help that Montgomery Cliff at the time was, of course, a, a known uh, bisexual. So that kind of adds that. Um, element of realism to it. I think that's probably uh, one of the cooler things about it, especially in a Wayne Western where that is usually used as stereotype yeah. and against characters to have a such a significant character do something like that is a, well, it's the most intriguing thing. You get a bit of that in the relationship with him and Wayne as well, is that Wayne isn't afraid to, to play this more intimate relationship with Montgomery Cliff's character either. You know, And there's a lot oh. of nuance in his performance, which you don't uh, see Wayne get the credit for, especially now. We're very, you know, typically very revisionist about Wayne as an actor and want to dismiss him for his politics. But, you know, he here in Red River especially, he shows he has a great um, presence as an actor and can actually do more than just the broad machismo. He's doing it with a greater purpose. And I don't think we are so much a society, but I feel like the Ellie's us too. We're able oh, me to look and you, past that. <laughs> yeah, I, no. I really respect Wayne, but. Uh, like I said during our viewing, I feel like he's a. I don't feel like he's a great actor. I feel like he's a great character. 
he's a, uh, definitely a great character when when really utilized right. Both both Hawks and Ford are able to really utilize Wayne correctly, but there are many 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 films where people don't use Wayne correctly, and he just becomes a caricature, and it's not so fun. I think one yeah. of the ones you saw, we watched uh, his last film, The Shootist, and that one's kind oh. of. That's rough, and that's where you get to see Wayne actually just acting like a how he'd act on his own, right? If given like a full leash. Yeah, he's uh, he's like he's that's him trying without any good direction. You know, no I mean, Don Siegel's a, a good director, but I don't think he did a particularly great job with the shootest. No, it was a it was a celebration of Wayne. It wasn't even yeah a, necessarily it, a a nuanced western. No, certainly it's hardly not. a western. It's all interior too. It is mostly really. I mean, there's a little bit of it there, enough to call it a western, but definitely not, yeah. not the the great send off that Wayne probably deserved. Mm. Uh, yeah, I feel like most of it is probably Hawks and Ford. I feel like it's not necessarily coming from Wayne in those films. Mm-hmm. But and that's because they know how to utilize Wayne. Wayne's a very powerful character when utilized right. You look at him in something like this or Stagecoach, especially, and his presence just dominates. He has this undeniable charisma that if utilized right can lend itself perfectly to any film you can call it a great performance it was actually this is a funny thing i can talk about um so uh, when john ford saw uh wayne's acting in red river saw him take on this kind of more mature and um you know not a straightforward character he said i didn't know the big son of a bitch could act <laughs> I, I still don't know if he can. There, this might be the most convincing argument I've seen that he can. Mm-hmm. And that's when um, Ford started, you know, using him in more complex, nuanced roles and stuff like uh, she wore yellow ribbon, and especially the Searchers, where they get yeah. a lot of moral complexity, and, and he can do it. He can deliver in those roles for sure. But mm-hmm. again, it takes someone like Ford to really, uh, you know, bring that together. Yeah, because I feel like when you don't rein him in, you do get the shootest. You get this uh, big ego-driven mess of a film. Or you get Whereas something like, like, like true that, Yeah, I feel like if you could constrain that ego in a productive way, it can go a long way. Definitely. you got to utilize it for the character, and it's he's very capable of doing so. There's other interesting roles from Wayne as well. I remember he plays a, this is interesting, he plays a Swede in The Long Voyage Home. Yeah, that's a weird one. It is. And he does a pretty good job, surprisingly. Yeah, he's okay in that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't think that he'd pull his suite off okay. But no, he, not at all. Fine. People like him a lot in The Quiet Man. That's another good one where he plays an Irish boxer. Yeah, he's he's fine. Yep, I generally okay. think that. I generally think he's fine. And, and in movies that I feel like are elevated, I don't feel like it's because of him. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this one definitely, uh, Red River, is entirely i think because wayne is, is so great in it and the character he's given is so great dunson's a very well written character he's got those moral complexities about him he does a, a really great job with it and with hawks hawks really knows how to work with actors hawks is very much an actor's kind of director does a really though, great job with them though i think if you put matt or tess in a scene they're going to steal where they're at uh whatever the scene is you think so you think they're better than wayne is yeah i think they're far better actors at least in this film Interesting, because I think very much the the opposite kind of feeling. I find, um, you know, Wayne is the most powerful presence in the film for me, for sure. But both of them, of course, any interactions with them are all very great. Yeah, and, and I don't I, feel like Joanne's given as much. Uh, Joanne Drew's given as much to work with as Wayne, but uh, when she shows up at the end, you you know, you get a bit of chills going. Yep, I think I also want to take a moment to talk about the the many other great kind of characters in the film because Wayne had a, a stock company of actors that typically followed him from film to film. And a couple of them are here, as well as some other familiar faces, like uh, 
Hank Warden's really great here, and he worked with Hawks a lot. Uh, I think I mentioned he's in, like, uh, Real Bravo and To Be or Not To Be. And uh, he's in, like, four pictures, like My Darling Clementine. And he plays a, uh, a Groot, Groot here, not the big tree man. Mm. Yeah, because you, you enjoyed Walter Brennan in this, yeah? Yeah, yeah, I thought he was good. Yeah, he's very fun. He has a lot of uh, kind of fun characteristics here. I think he gets an even more fun character kind of later in Rio Bravo when he plays Stumpy. But yeah, <clears throat> it is like an Avengers of Western, right? Like you get all of uh, John Ford's, uh, all the guys. Uh, yep, kind of yeah. like a kind of like a cowboy. He kind of rides in a pack and he gets his friends some work. Well, that's the, the idea here, and you see these guys pop up in a lot of other, you know, uh, Ford or Wayne films or whatever. Like, of course, there's a. Uh, Harry Carey and his son, Harry Carey Jr., is in here. You know, both big Western icons. And uh, you got Hedwig Hank Warden, one of my favorites from the, the Wayne Company there. I love him in The Searchers. As, yeah. Um, yeah. And so they, they all add a lot of presence to it. They add characters, so the interactions with the various men of the, the, of the troop here, they aren't just people in there. They're actual characters, and you get a feeling for them. You know, the same thing where you have the characters like Cherry Valance or the the guy who ends up causing the stampede because he's being an yeah. idiot stealing sugar. John uh, John Ireland's fantastic in this. Uh, yes, I, I really like him in it. Mm-hmm. He does a great job as this uh, more sinister kind of character. I always get a sinister vibe from Cherry Valance. Yeah, yeah, he's dark. Mm-hmm. He's like always a... good at playing like a dark cowboy. Anyway. Yeah, is you know, Red River's really got you know. Almost everyone you could want in a Western film. I think the only kind of big Wayne character who's not here is there's no um, uh, Ward Bond. Ward Bond's yeah. not here. Yeah, it does feel like uh, some stars coming together to make a special picture that would uh, kind of define that year. Yeah. Uh, I think another uh, important thing to talk about the film is just... You know, I think we already briefly mentioned the scope, but I think the scope is really only existent and accentuates because of the the score of the film which is really sweeping and grand mm-hmm. when you... and it, it does work because it it feels like a long voyage um there is a way to make something operatic like this or an italian western mm-hmm. and then there's like another way of uh going like a hostiles route that uh explores like absences of space which uh it's interesting to me whichever one the uh, director goes with because uh the italians either go either far end right like they it's all cutting out uh and silences or it's like a grand statement of opera right it's typically and it leans definitely more on the operatic side and i think red river definitely has a sense too though it's more classical than um you know the the operatic spaghetti western styles this is not as stylish as that is the same thing kind of with like the the searchers is very similar there's a lot of similarities between red river and the searcher both in you know, kind of the scope of things the complexity of wayne's character the you know and all that going on Although I feel like the opera is weirdly staged, like some of its most climatic stuff just pops up in the middle of a fistfight or something, and it kind of devalues uh, some scenes that might deserve the song. Yeah, you know, i got to say, there are a, a couple of things throughout Red River that maybe diminish it just a bit. It's one of my favorite westerns, I think, for sure, and I can watch it endlessly, but that's not to say that it's flawless. I think I, I kind of point out <laughs> early on, there's at least one thing I have a big problem with, because it's just so... It's a, it's a dumb transition from... Because you got the whole beginning segment which honestly if i think about it you don't really need the beginning segment except for the fact that the the callback to um uh joanne drew's character to the the woman that uh, wayne lost in the beginning yeah. otherwise all of that's not really needed just gets a lot of like backstory stuff that i think you could set up easily 
in yeah. a kind of you know modern day introduction and in the character I feel like there. What you're talking about is we have a lot of screens that are just text and they move a little bit too quickly to ever read them anyway, right? Yeah. So that's the thing is that there are there are two versions of the film. There's this uh, pre-release version that we watched. You watched through Amazon. And then there's a the actual theatrical version, which is a little harder to find, but you know you can get it from various releases and whatnot, which is the one Howard Hawks preferred, which substitutes out uh, text pages, kind of like a storybook telling device, with a voiceover from Walter Brennan's character. Hmm. And I'm a, I'm a stickler, I'm a huge stickler for voiceover, so I don't like the voiceover as much in this version, and so I prefer the one, even though you can't read the text that's going on the screen for you know like it's up for like two seconds and it's gone. They try and, like, just highlight a specific word or whatever in the middle of the page, and that's what you're supposed to read. Yeah, when they show you a full text on a page, you're never really specifically supposed to read the whole thing. No. You're just supposed to get, like, a vague idea of a premise at the time and place. And I prefer it kind of that way, honestly, because any information they provide in both the book and the uh, voiceover version is entirely unneeded. It's just extra exposition, like you're reading literally from the chapters of the book itself. And the film does a fine enough job, grand job, of displaying everything you kind of need just within the the conversations and everything there i'd be yeah. much happier if they even just cut it out entirely but i think i'd prefer they just cut it out yeah but, uh, but if i had to pick one i pick the the book one because i can typically just ignore it it doesn't stick around for long enough to actually be yeah. a bother plus that version has the extended finale which you got to see which is very nice and you prefer to ignore things when you have to read them like foreign films right? <laughs> You, want, you think I just ignore all the text on the screen, just try and interpret everything from actions? No, I think you just don't watch them. <laughs> I watch plenty of foreign films, come on. I just don't watch your snooty French films. Fine. Um, but uh, this uh, this one... Yeah, I mean, there really aren't a lot of snooty American films. So, uh, this one feels like an establishment of something that Westerns would follow. Uh, we saw a lot of this in Shane. Yep. Especially around like the gay romance, there's a lot of... Uh, a subtext that it borrows from a, this, especially in the encampments and the funeral scene. Mm-hmm, I definitely agree with that. There's lots of it. It went on to uh, inspire lots of other ones. Um, I don't know, uh, as you know, both um, John Carpenter and uh, Peter Bogdanovich are huge uh, you know, proponents Hawks of uh, Hawks. Yeah, they love Hawks. Hawks is a huge influence on both of them. Uh, Red River particularly was a huge uh, kind of cultural uh, importance to uh, Bogdanovich even featured it in uh, Last Picture Show as one of the important sequences there. Yeah, I think if someone wanted to pace a movie, and especially a road movie or a drive movie like this, uh, I feel like this is about as uh, perfect as you could get the pacing. I'd say so. There's definitely, because there's important beats that happened uh, much more in the, the first half, I would say, of the film, and the second half it slows a bit more, especially when Wayne kind of separates. Um, you know, it drifts just, just a tiny bit but, you know, that doesn't stop it from being very well-paced otherwise, and you still got plenty of that there. But, you know, there's important beats that happen all the way throughout the film, all the way up into culminating in a fantastic kind of shootout finale, which is a clash of uh, all the tension that's been building up throughout the whole film between the two characters and everything going on there. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's... Yeah, I feel like it's nicely paced. I, I enjoy all the um, the variety of scenes, really. Yeah, and there is quite a lot. I think there were many times I think we were watching we were like, wow, that was a really great moment. There's lots of really great moments throughout Red River that will stick with you after. We talked about, like, the, the stampede. There's, like, the, the big sequence. There's a good uh, part with Montgomery that they're fighting in the, the wagon surrounding area yeah. there. 
That's a great sequence. There's a lot of good fights in it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great moments of action throughout it. It's not like endless action or anything. It doesn't get mundane. I feel like modern films struggle a little bit more than the black and whites to photograph action. Because when you have Wayne, you know, throwing those loose punches, it's a little bit easier to film with that uh, way back then. I think there's a lot of, and that calls back to me to both uh, other westerns like Shane and like High Noon, and even some uh, old noir films I think about too, where the the action sequences, it's not a lot of fighting. It's not like choreographed or anything. It's just very messy, real fighting. Well, like sequence. Shane, you could yeah. see how he's like way overthrowing his punch and how amplified it is. Mm-hmm. But it feels really like, you know, you feel the punches a lot more, I think. And the same thing kind of here within Red River where you got the fight between uh, Wayne and Clift and they're really just going at it. And I think that's the other impressive thing is that you don't expect right away for Clift to be able to knock Wayne off his feet. You know, Wayne's a big guy. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I th- I feel like Cliff really shows up in this. I don't feel like anyone necessarily mails it in, but I feel like Cliff, Cliff does the best job. Yeah, and I can definitely take that as well. He's got a, a very uh, fitting persona for him. He's very cool and kind of this kind of collected character. And he does a really great job of it. There's a really great moment at one point where uh, Wayne is you know considering who to send off to go look for the deserters or whatever. At first he kind of turns to Cliff, but Cliff's just kind of sipping on his coffee cup. Just a small touch like that that's really that shows kind of how collected he is. There's a lot of sitting around having coffee and beans, and it's it's nice that you get small bouts of downtime where you get to understand characters. Because mm-hmm. if it didn't have that, the rest wouldn't mean anything. Yep. I think like to modern action films, how the action and fights don't actually mean anything to me. Like a especially Marvel or whatever, if it's just CG fighting CG, like I don't give a shit. But watching like a messy scrap, that's still interesting to me. Well, I think the important thing that really lends a lot of weight to it, especially here, is that it's, you know, what what they're fighting about and what you understand about the characters. You know, there's a lot of that going into it more than even the punches. You know, the punches have more meaning behind them than just, you know, two dudes getting taken it out on each other. I'd agree. And uh, definitely, is the, the ending especially, I love the Red River because it's almost a kind of meta interruption of everything going on because you have the, the love interest here, Hawks's. Ox is always really great with women characters and very, you know, kind of you think forward. So? Yeah, forward thinking, I think. Um, you know, you wouldn't see a woman in any other film shooting at the the natives, you know, Native Americans, you know. They wouldn't give a woman yeah. a gun in a Western. Same thing <laughs> with, like... like I feel ahead. like the images are powerful with her of a gun. Like, when Tessa picks up a gun, I feel like that's a powerful moment. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And it's, it extends beyond Red River. His, his screwball comedies are very empowering for women and whatnot. You know, famously, he did a role reversal for the front page and made Hildy Johnson a, a woman for his Girl Friday. Yeah, I think he's really great at it. And um, I, I I do feel like she's mostly defined by the men, but she kind of turns that around on its head by the end, doesn't she? Well, that's the thing. That's what's great about the ending there is that it really, you know, Hawks is unafraid to call out the ridiculousness of machismo in this. You know, they he, he points out the whole time how the, the feud between... Dunson and Matt is just this bullshit of, you know, not wanting to admit to things. She basically just flat out says, Dunson, you're acting here like you're going to kill him, and you know it's the last thing in the world you do. Yeah, they really love each other, and there's still, like, the uh, homosexual vibe going underneath it. Which is... Yeah, and, it, and that's, I think, just kind of like one reading, but definitely it's there. The intimacy between men is a, a strong theme, I think, just not only here, but also in, like, Hawks' work in general, you know, and you've yeah. got that. And he's not afraid. It's not, it's you... not a condemnation of it in any ways and embrace you definitely 
you definitely feel like this building in cinema history. Like you get to Fight Club and you still see this movie inside it. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely a good read of it as well. But yeah, it's um, you know it takes a woman to kind of point out their the ridiculousness of action, and they basically just drop their entire conflict from that point. You know, Wayne's character throughout has been told you're wrong about this. You know, you know you know what's going on is wrong, and he kind of just brushes it off, but still kind of acknowledging that that is the case until finally coming around here at the end, where he just has to accept that he made the wrong decisions all the way, and I just think- looking out for him. I think you'd think that that makes it a great ending, but where I come off is that it's just too convenient and too easily tied up. It's too clean for me. I don't think it's that the case, because I think that was, that was always the case. That's the idea to me with the mm-hmm. ending, is that Wayne was always aware that he was in the wrong and he's doing it, but he felt this obligation to his, to his manliness, you know, this his duty to stand up for what's his and what's right, and it didn't, you know, took all the way until this moment where he's being blatantly called out for it to acknowledge that he is just being an idiot about it all. He's right. not, that's what she says flat out. He just, he's not actually mad about this. He just feels his obligation to defend, you know, what is supposed to be his or whatever. Despite I just being think it's a small cop-out to what the film is building toward. Ah, see, so yeah, again, I, I entirely disagree there. I think that's kind of the perfect way. I think it also, you know, tells us to kind of think and consider on our own, you know, how we're choosing to cop out in different ways. That's the thing is that he'd been copping out till that point. This is him finally acknowledging it. Yeah, I mean, he has to take accountability at that point because he's confronted with the evidence that uh, this is yeah. how he's been all along, and it does play that way. And he I does. I feel he, like that was the entire movie. He gives Matt at the end, you know, his mark on the Red River Ranch, you know, as he kind of fast forward in the beginning, which is a nice way of kind of resolving that up as well. I just kept expecting them to draw dicks in the sand, but they, <laughs> they just kept writing large letter Ds, which was close enough for me. Uh, I guess there's, you can keep reading that. Look at that, there's more potential homosexual subtext in there oh there's a lot (laughs) (laughs) well you think you uh enjoyed red river on the whole then uh yeah i think i i think i got enough out of it for a first viewing i think i'll dive in a little bit more the second yeah i'm glad to see uh that you did enjoy it so much i had a fun time watching with you definitely there's lots of highlights in the film where it's gonna wow and amaze people on on a first viewing not knowing about so that was always really great to see. I like this is a fun movie to share. I think with people. Yeah, I think it. I was a little skeptical because it was so long, but it it flew by. And this podcast too went way too quick. Yeah, and that's, I guess that's another good indicator of it, is that we were able to talk at length about it without feeling like we're just filling space. And that's always the merits of a good film. There. Yeah, um, like us. Yes, a that good was film. <laughs> uh, I guess that's another conversation. But yeah, I was glad. Um, that we got to a Wayne film, because in the future we'll be able to talk about more kind of films with this, but hopefully next time, I think maybe we'll try do another spaghetti next week, I don't know, maybe we'll do one from your wheelhouse next yeah. week when we talk about a western, because we did. That would be good. I, I think yeah. we have Hellboy coming up that we might look at too, and uh, a few other things on the radar. Yep, definitely uh, keep, in, keep stay tuned for whatever we're going to do next, but, you know, we love to talk about westerns, and it's only going to be a matter of time before we come back around to another one. Yeah, uh, Hopefully we could continue our pace of like one every month or so. That's the goal, hopefully. So we'll get back to another Western next time, or that, that time then. But until then, we'll keep filling with uh, the, the other films we intend to talk about. Yeah, other films. <laughs> I don't have an ending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cut. All right.